Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockton Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bike Pack Adventures podcast. Maple syrup season is officially over for me. All in all, I think I made around 24 liters of syrup. Um, didn't turn out as well as last year, actually. So that was the downside of it all. But it's a little bit darker, a little bit stronger. I have to figure out what I did differently. I kind of got a few ideas, but uh, yeah, such is life, you know. The downside of spending all that time making maple syrup is that we had this one period with about a week's a week's worth of amazing weather. I think it was 30 degrees outside or something insane. And I basically missed it all. I couldn't get out riding and stuff because I had a syrup in my garage that was sitting and it needed to be boiled and I had to focus on getting that done. And uh, so, yeah, I basically missed all the really good weather and I was super jealous of everybody I saw out there riding. But that's part of life, you know. While while boiling away, I was also changing tires on the from winter to summer tires. I was uh, actually had my dad come over and help uh, teach me how to to do some body work on my car and fix some spots where rust was forming. Not as complicated as I thought it'd be, and uh, so I've been working on that, trying to get all that done. Um, yeah, so it's part of life, I guess. Right? Can't always be riding. Not when you own a house with like two acres of property. Anyways, that is life, you know? So yeah, I did get out for a 55-kilometer ride on Friday night. That was uh, one of my first bigger outdoor rides this year. And um, I rode a little section of the Canadian Shield bikepacking route that takes you from Wakefield to the Poggin Dam, and then I obviously rode back. Um, Lots of gravel climbs and descents. Beautiful valleys, um, more scenic during the day, of course, and uh, riding along the Gatineau River. It was about 55 kilometers or so and 753 meters of elevation or 753. I don't know how I could say that, but 750 something, something like that. And yeah, actually, it's really, really nice at night. I think I saw two cars the entire time I was on gravel. There was a couple kilometers on the, the paved road at the start. Uh, but after that, basically, I saw almost no vehicles and nothing else. And just nice skies and good riding. What more could you ask for? Highly recommend people get out there and uh, check it out. 
What else? If you're a fan of the podcast, if you're enjoying the podcast and you're liking the content I'm bringing to you, guys, I would really love your support. Uh, it helps me get through the hard times with uh, figuring things out when it comes to equipment and gear and subscriptions to various things like podcast editing software and um, websites and URLs and all that fun stuff. I would like to thank Alexander Radan, one of my longtime supporters now, for increasing his monthly contribution. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much, Alexander. And for anyone else out there, if you go to www.patreon.com slash bikepackadventures, uh, you can join right up and start supporting me. As well as that, I'd like to thank uh, Adrian, I'm not sure how to say his last name, but Geese or Guse. Um, for giving me a nice little one-time donation on PayPal. So do I do appreciate that. Thank you so much, Adrian. Um, next thing up, the Canadian Shield Bikepacking Summit. There are less than 50 days until the summit. Um, there is still time to buy tickets. and Come join us for an amazing weekend. It's going to be group rides, presentations, uh, lots of opportunities to meet and make new friends, and of course, uh, connect with some amazing companies from around the region that are supporting the event. Um, it's going to be a really good time. I would love to see more people there, and uh, I hope that uh, if you haven't bought a ticket yet that uh, and you've been thinking about it, it's time to do it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's coming up soon. Before we start this episode of the Bike Pack Adventures podcast, I've invited Simon Bergeron on the show to share with us a little bit about his company, Panorama Cycles. I'm very excited that Panorama has shown their faith in not just my podcast when they sponsored me this past winter by supplying me with the Panorama Shikshok's carbon fat bike, but also that they're keen on being involved as a sponsor of the Canadian Shield Bikepacking Summit, the first bikepacking summit to be held in Eastern Canada. Simon, welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures podcast. Hey, thanks, uh, Chris, for having me. I've uh, been a long-time listener of the podcast, so it's awesome to be talking with you today. And it's awesome to have you as a sponsor of the Canadian Shield Bikepacking Summit. Can you tell us about Panorama Cycles and what made you decide to start a bicycle manufacturing company? Yeah, sure. So Panorama Cycles uh, is a bike company. We're based in Granby, Quebec, in uh, a beautiful new location in which uh, we just moved in. So we design and offer uh, now seven bike models which cover pretty much all the range of what we can call adventure bikes. So we offer fat bikes, we have gravel bikes, uh, we have a, a drop bar mountain bike, we have an all-road touring and, and also a multi-use hardtail mountain bike. Um, five of the models are, uh, are designed using uh, Reynolds high-end uh, steel tubing and, and two models are made of carbon fiber. So the business was founded in 2014, and we sold the first bikes in 2016. Uh, so I've been cycling my whole life, except for uh, two, three years, which surprisingly led me to the, the creation of this business. And mm -hmm. uh, to make a long story short, so I started racing mountain bike uh, in the early 2000 and worked in a lot of different bike shops. And then later on, started working for Guru Cycle, uh, which uh, was a, a local uh, bike builder uh, at the time. And that was during my mechanical engineering uh, degree. So my life at that point was pretty much all around biking, uh, riding, uh, racing uh, all the time. And, and, you know, this started to f feel to me more and more uh, repetitive. 
And uh, about in 2011, my attention really deviates from cycling to everything, uh, I would say, um, everything adventure sports. Uh, so started long distance hiking expedition and started doing uh, rock and ice climbing, made uh, several uh, alpinism trips. And, and at one point I was reading on a potential trip. Uh, I was uh, about to plan in Nepal. And I stumbled on our, uh, an article from a cyclist who just completed the Annapurna circuit on a mountain bike. And that's the moment I, I discovered that uh, my passion for uh, cycling can be merged with uh, everything I really mm-hmm. liked about uh, all the adventure sports. And uh, I would say everything that re- requires uh, planning and uh, route finding, uh, risk assessment, and, and so on. So reading on this topic, I realized also at that time that the bikepacking scene in Quebec was very, uh, very minimal. And on the other hand, our vast territory uh, we, we have here, it offers uh, big opportunities for trips yep. and exploration. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I felt uh, really in love with this sport of off-road touring and bikepacking and 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 thinking also product wise i i thought there was a, a room for something different uh, so so a lot of ideas of you know put, putting this uh, company together it came to life at, at that point excellent and if you don't mind me asking um why did you make your first bike as a fat bike oh uh, that's a good question uh at that time uh fat bike was you know there was a uh, some business uh, sense or business opportunities uh there was a there was the the old lineup was already in my mind i had this time i added it was already i I added in mind all the models i wanted to have but it was a time that uh you know in 2015 or something like that the, the the fat bike was very popular and i felt that uh we could sell the fat bikes uh all year round uh, and I still do believe it can be a, a, a great bike to ride also in the summer uh, as well as in, in the winter so so business wise I think only one bike I thought we could market it and sell it in the summer as well as the in the the, the winter as an, an adventure uh, bike you know so we launched the, the fat bike and the summer we we started offering a 29er plus mm-hmm wheel 29 by three with the, the tires and everything so and we we we, we sold the fat bike in, even in the summer so it was you know in the, in the business plan that was a uh, that was something uh, we wanted to run all year long so that, that was the, the thinking awesome thank you so simon what was your vision when you created the brand i know on the website i read about multi-usage quality and suitable for all levels how does that tie in with your your overall vision yeah, so I founded the company at a time I was uh, really influenced by outdoor brands and, and I would say probably more than cycling brands. So so I always wanted to put in front the, the, the experience lived on a bike in the global sense more than just the, the product itself. So, you know, what, when you go out on a bike pack adventure, you ride your bike, but there's a lot more going on. So that's a, the whole experience here I'm talking about. So so product-wise, my, my background and expertise uh, was in composite material. So, so uh, being knowledgeable and having the network uh, helped me a ton okay. to design and develop the, the, the first bike. And so I wanted to design bikes that have uh, all the right feature for its use. 
you know, the geometry are adapted for long distance cycling, wanted to have the, the, the bike that are the most durable and, and could be used in a lot of different uh, situations. So, you know, we're uh, uh, being a small bike brand, so we have uh, a really strong rela- relationship with our, our customers. And we listen to every feed- feedback we receive and, and we feel now the, the, the lineup is pretty good and but still a lot of different ideas uh, are, are, and projects are, are going on at the moment. And you probably saw something about the opinion uh, Gearbox bike uh, uh, that showed yeah. up on our social media. So that's one of the projects we're working on at the moment. Okay, and I'm looking forward to seeing that bike at the uh, the, the bike packing <laughs> summit. <laughs> sure, it will be there. I know that uh, you are also one of the, or maybe the first bike brand to become uh, fully climate neutral certified. Yeah. Um, what does that mean to you, and how did you guys go about achieving this goal? Yeah, so so uh, again, that's uh, that's something it's more common to see with brands in the the outdoor industry space more than it's common to see in the, the cycling world. So right from the beginning beginning of Panorama, having some kind of engagement toward the environment was very important uh, to me. So we could have done a lot of different things, uh, but through uh, discussions and, and search, I felt that compensating for our emissions was, was the right thing to do. Uh, so uh, we partner with this uh, organization and actually this year we, we just announced we, we partner with a, a Canadian organization which is uh, Carbon Zero and, and they help us uh, throughout the year to measure our emissions for our uh, operations uh, and this goes from raw material production to, to frame manufacturing and, and transportation and distribution and, and once this is all uh, approved we, we purchase a carbon credits and actually, the carbon credits are, in fact, uh, money that we send directly to certified projects, uh, which have specific goals uh, toward helping with the global warming situation. So overall, in, in, my, in, in my sense, this is a very tangible action that we're doing, which uh, makes us feel good about what we do. And I will say that in the last few years, our customers, uh, we get a lot of comments that makes us believe that our customers really care about that. And I will tend to say that apart from the bike itself and the, the let's say the credibility we have gained in, in our market, uh, this is definitely one of the, the top arguments that come up when people consider our bikes. Excellent. Yeah, I know you also uh, recently started a, uh, a means of recycling leftover carbon fiber products, right? You know, I think this is something that's really difficult to do is to reuse or, or recycle carbon fiber. How have you guys approached this dilemma? Yeah, this uh, partnership with uh, C7 Composite is, is pretty sh- special because we looked in the past into partnering for recycling our, our unusable products. And it's very difficult for a company to use the long uh, fiber uh, to be used in, uh, let's say, a performance uh, product. So uh, C7 has approached the, the, the problem with a different uh, vision. So they're taking our unusable product or, or, or scrap from production and they are grinding everything to powder. And with this powder, they are making, uh, they change the powder as an additive to plastic. And this additive is increasing the mechanical properties of the part that they're doing and changing, let's say, the visual aspect. It's um, an interesting way to reuse our our, our scrap products. And uh, C7 is uh, 
is is doing great is a, a startup company at the moment they've okay. been in business let's say for two years and having a lot of partners at the moment and doing some great products and we we're very excited with this uh, this partnership excellent and um can you also touch on i mean i know that you said uh you buy carbon credits for to offset your carbon impact now as a brand with a vision towards environmentability and sustainability, are you always trying to figure out how you can constantly make this impact smaller? So it's it's also costing you less, but you're actually having less yeah. impact on the environment? Yes, definitely. The organization we're working with to buy uh, the, 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 the carbon credits, uh, they, they require us to provide us a, a plan of uh, reduction of emissions. So, so that's something always on our uh, radar. So, well, the big part we have a lot of control on is, is everything uh, transportation. Mm-hmm. So if we're uh, better at, at planning uh, the sample, we receive most of the, the, the product sample from our, our factories uh, are received by air. So if we can plan better there, it's uh, definitely some, some, some of the part we have a lot of control on. Everything traveling tra- to see our, our different uh, partners and factories we're working with. Uh, that's something also uh, very important on our side. And uh, definitely uh, product-wise, there's always a, a few things we're, we're uh, looking into. But we're very happy. Five or our seven models, as, as I said, are made with uh, Reynolds high-end uh, steel tubing. And Reynolds uh, produce everything uh, locally in UK. And they're pretty aware also of, uh, our, uh, of their impact and their footprint. Uh, so choosing the right partner is definitely a, mm-hmm. a big a, a big topic for us. Excellent. Well, I think that touches off everything for this little mini pod episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. And I think next time we'll dive deeper into the various bike brands and uh, talk about that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, Simon. Okay. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. Hey everyone, before we jump into this podcast, I just want to apologize for the audio. It wasn't the absolute best. I did everything I could to try to make it as good as possible. There was a little bit of static on the line with Sofian and um, yeah, so I, I just, you know, I, I did everything I could to make it as well, good as possible. So if it isn't perfect, I do apologize. As well as that little intro before speaking with the Simon of Panorama Cycles, um, there was a little bit, it was a little weird, the background sounded, I couldn't get rid of it and uh, just didn't want to re-record it. So there you have it. I uh, hope you enjoy the podcast either way, anyway, and uh, yeah, keep on pedaling. All right, on to this episode. In this episode of the Bikepack Adventures podcast, I finally have the opportunity to learn a little bit more about Sofian Sahili. When I first reached out to Sofian over a year ago, he told me that he's done a ton of podcasts and that he'd be happy to come on the show so long as our conversation was on something new, something he hadn't talked about. After following Sofian and his partner's adventures throughout Southeast Asia this past winter, I thought this was the perfect opportunity to have him come on the show and share his adventures and talk about bikepacking during the off-season. Most people know Sofian as a Parisian bike courier turned bikepacker, as a racer that has an unnatural ability to stay up for really long periods of time and, of course, a pretty well-regarded singer. What you may not know is that it all started for Sofiane on a bike trip in Southeast Asia years earlier. This time around, he came back so he could share the experience with his partner. Sofiane, welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures podcast. 
Um, I think everybody knows who you are, but for those that might not, Sofian, could you just uh, introduce yourself? Tell us who you are. Uh, so I'm Sofian Tehili. I'm French, live in Paris, and I'm a professional endurance cyclist, uh, bike packer, winner of uh, several uh, bike packing races. Most people associate you as this, uh, you know, getting to it anyways, legendary bike pack racer, ultra distance racer. Um, but you've actually done a significant amount of bike touring or bike pack travel. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's how I started um, into cycling, actually. Uh, I was, for several years, I, were, I was just a regular commuter. And when I uh, started taking cycling more seriously, um, I came to bike touring, bike packing. And yes, I am not just a endurance racer. I'm also uh, still a bike packer, which means that uh, several times a year, I'm going to go on short or long bike packing trips. For example, last year, uh, I went on several trips. Uh, some were like week long bike packing trips, but the longest was um, two and a half months. Nice. So I am still uh, a bike packer bike tour uh the nuance is very thin i think mm -hmm. but yeah i mean basically i spend my life on, on a bike as much as i can and uh whether it's racing or just traveling nice that's awesome and what was your first big tour like um how long ago was that and where did you go uh that was that was 12 years ago uh, it was at the end of 2010, and that's how I fell in love with uh, cycling, actually. So I, um, I traveled to Southeast Asia because it's, uh, it's a part of the world that um, I've always been fascinated with, and it's a part of the world that I really wanted to visit. And I went there with just a backpack, and I had like a very, very limited experience of what bike touring was because I had I had done a, a, a two-day bike packing trip in France okay uh, from the south of France to Lyon where I was living at the time and some people were asking me like yeah you're gonna ride your bike when you when you travel to Southeast Asia and we're like I don't know I don't want to leave with the bike and then you're just you kind of have to do it because mm -hmm. I was living for three months, so I was like, I don't want to be stuck with a bike and not wanting to actually ride a bike. And I was like, Yeah, if I want a bike, I can, I can buy one there. I can rent one by one. And I traveled uh, with trains, buses, taxis, tuk-tuks, you name them. And after a week or so, ten days maybe, I was kind of like, This is not working out. This is not the adventure that I was dreaming of. I um, I feel that I, I don't have the freedom that I was looking for, and I feel like I'm, I'm very stuck on the beaten track, mm -hmm. and that I can't really explore um, as much as I as I'd as I would like to. And it was just a hassle, you know. It was just like always checking the Lonely Planet to find out where the bus station was, what time the bus was leaving, and sometimes the the, the schedule had changed and a lot of times the buses were late or they would just break down and I um, I get to Vientiane which is the capital of Laos 
And I felt that, you know, the beginning of this trip was just not as, as, um, how would I, how should I put it? Uh, adventurous as, as I envisioned it. Yeah. And I thought, all right, I was checking the lonely planet. I was like, where should I go? And it seemed that Northern Laos, like close to the Chinese border seemed like was a bit more off the beaten track. And so I hopped on a bus, which was supposed to be 12 hours to uh, Long Nam Tao. So that was, yeah, that was a really long bus journey. And you have to imagine a bus that, uh, a very old bus on, on broken roads. And every time it, it goes up a pass, they have to stop it several times and drop buckets of water on the engine. And when night comes, um, loud music that is gonna, that is gonna keep the, the driver from falling asleep. And I'm the only one that uh, actually, uh, would not sleep in spite of the loud music and people would, you know, fall asleep on my shoulder or yeah. stuff like that. That sounds fun, but you know, <laughs> in reality, it's not, that, <laughs> not actually that enjoyable. And yeah, so I get to that small town. I was like, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a small town by by you know Western standards, yeah. but for for Laos, uh, which is a very small country, uh, very rural, uh, it's it's one of the bigger towns there. Um, and there were there was a a bike rental shop there, and I was like, all right, I'm going to rent a bike, and I'm going to see how I fare on the on the roads of Laos. And I rented the bike, cycled around for three days. Did you have your backpack just like on your back and go or? Um, I, uh, yeah, at first, yeah. But when I was cycling around, I just had the backpack on the back. And then I, I went back to the shop and I, I said I wanted to buy the bike. And they were like, all right, it's $100. I'm like, all right, I'll give you 50 And they're like, no, it's $100. i am like, all right, I'll give you $75. I'm like, no, I'll, 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 it's 100 Like, okay, I'll give you 100 But then <laughs> I don't have to pay for the rental yeah, you have to pay for the yeah. rental because you rented the bike. It was not yours. So I'm a terrible negotiator. Uh, so I bought the bike and they, and they put a rack on the bike actually. Ah, nice. And from, from then on, I had this backpack on that rack. Uh, and that's how I started my journey through, uh, my first ever journey through Southeast Asia. Oh, that's amazing. I remember taking a night bus in uh, in Laos as well, and it's when they it was one of those sleeper buses. And when they told me that you had to share the bed with this other guy, and I was like, a bed that was smaller yeah. than a single anywhere else in the world. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and the guys all cuddled up with me. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Yeah, I tried one of these buses as well, uh, and I ended up sharing my my bunk with the monk. That loved football, so he, he just kept, uh, he couldn't speak English, so he just kept saying, uh, 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 names of French footballers to me, and I had to kind of decipher. Yeah. Because, uh, a French name with a Lao accent's not always easy for me to understand. That's but, a good point. Yeah, that was, that was a fun part of, of, you know, traveling on a bus. Yeah. 2011 was my Southeast Asia backpacking travel tour, and then, uh, 2012 I was like, oh no, I'm doing by bike, and that was, that was the yeah. flip there. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I was going to ask you what kind of bike you used back on that tour, but uh, apparently it was just a uh, very cheap Chinese bike, probably, that managed to somehow yeah. not fall apart. Very Chinese Merida mountain bike uh, that, yeah, fell apart quite 
early in the trip, like I, I think after two days, I broke the derailleur. And so I did a fair bit of Laos single speed. Uh, and you can't really buy bike parts in Laos. So mm-hmm. I had to wait till you be in Cambodia to find bike parts and get a, a new derailleur. And I don't remember exactly what kind of bike. I think it was a three by eight. Um, and yeah, probably found a derailleur that could only accommodate seven speed, but. I guess if you can, oh, it was all in good fun. If you can survive that trip on that bike, everything else after that is just a little bit easier. Yeah, uh, definitely. So this time around, twelve years later, you, uh, you and your partner Fanny, right? You guys yeah. decided to do a a long tour around Southeast Asia again. Um, what bike did you use for this trip? Oh, much better bikes, better ones. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sure, uh, Fanny has has uh, endurance road bike. Um, and I have an all road bike. Uh, they're both by, uh, Vitas, my, uh, sponsor, mm-hmm. my English sponsor. And I had, yeah, all road bike was, um, all road wheel set by Hunt Carbon. And I had 35Cs, uh, Bonjon Pass by Rene S, Extra Light. Um, and a Shimano GRX GI2 group set. Ah, with, okay. Uh, uh, one by. I think it was a 40 in the front and 1142 in the back. And yeah, super smooth. And that's the, that's the Venon or Venon or how do you say it? Yeah, that's the Venon. That's the the prototype that's going to come out in a couple months. Before continuing on with the show, I'd like to thank Panorama Cycles for sponsoring this podcast. Panorama Cycles is a bicycle manufacturer in Quebec, Canada, dedicated to backcountry cyclists that prefer gravel, snow, and off-road trails. They believe cycling is a catalyst for adventures of all sizes and that there's no need to travel across the world or to be a seasoned athlete to live epic outdoor adventures. Over the past year, I've been riding the Chick Chocks fat bike, the Katadin gravel bike, and the Taiga mountain bike. From everyday rides, bikepacking trips, and a multitude of races and events, these bikes have put a huge smile on my face every step of the way, while also getting me on the podium on the Wendigo Ultra fat bike race and helped me set an FKT on the Canadian Shield 400. In partnering up with the Bike Pack Adventures podcast, Panorama Cycles also wants to give back to the cycling community, particularly you, the listeners of the podcast. By using the promo code BPA10 when purchasing a new bike from PanoramaCycles.com, you'll save 10%. For more information on their environmental commitments or to check out their bikes, head to PanoramaCycles.com. Now back to the show. Yeah, I saw lots of people commenting like, hey, when are these on sale? Like on your Instagram and stuff. And you're like, guys, just have to wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, initially it was supposed to come out in, in January, I think. And yeah, they're, they have to they have to postpone, which is, I guess, uh, Part of life. usual in, in, in the bike industry. Mm-hmm. How, uh, have you ever had issues? I, I really like, I'm always blown away when people are taking a, like DI2 or electronic shifting. And, you know, I kind of... Maybe it's just that old school mentality. And I, I'm sure lots of older bike tours would be like, oh man, that guy's crazy. Um, you ever have any major issues or uh, anything that you couldn't deal with on the spot or within a, a period Honestly, of time? Honestly, I was, I was the same. Yeah. I was exactly the same. And I was like, I would never go on a remote bike touring trip with an electronic, uh, group set. Uh, and then I started using this, uh, DI2 group set, um, um, 20, at the beginning of 2021. Okay. And I used it like really extensively. I went on 
several bike packing trips that were not that remote actually mm-hmm. where it was like all right and i was in spain i was like okay i can't i can use my di2 in spain if something goes problem. wrong i can sort it out yeah. right there's bike shops there you know i was i was in corsica i was in sardinia i was in sicily and i was using this 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 group set all the time on on bike trips that were you know closer to home i considered using it in Colombia, and then I was like, yeah, I'm not sure. It's, it's quite far away. I mean, in retrospect, I would do it because Colombia um, has a lot of bike shops mm-hmm. and they're good bike shops. And I, and, and I think that any trouble that you have, they can actually deal with it. But yeah, after using that group set extensively and never having a single problem, I was like, yeah, I guess I can I can take it to... I can take it to Thailand. And I mean, Thailand is far away, but it's, it's, it's not a third world country. Mm-hmm. They have bike shops. And they have good bike shops. Have, yeah. Yeah. They have solutions. I mean, if you're in, if you're in Bangkok, if you're in Chiang Mai, they used to see top and, mm-hmm. you know, bikes, road bikes, gravel bikes, whatever. So they can use, they can deal with any issue that you have the same way that, you know, bike shops in Europe or in North America can, can, um, actually do as well. Okay. So I was like, all right. And then like, if there's, I felt really confident about that. And then I knew that I would go to, I would go to Laos and Vietnam as well. And, and then I know, uh, I knew that if anything happens in Laos and in Vietnam, then it's going to be a different different issue because there there's nothing you can do there's no bike yeah, at all. Yeah. but yeah but like yeah i mean i've been on very very long bike trips with uh um group set that i had chosen for their what i thought was their durability and i think when there's a problem there's a problem you know it, it's not yeah. because you chose Electronic shifting, you can have a problem with, with mechanical shifting. Sure. I actually had a problem. Uh, I, um, I went on a trip, uh, from, uh, it was my longest ever bikepacking trip, actually. It was from Paris to Taiwan. Oh, shit. And, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I had, I was like, all right, I'm going to need something that is sturdy. And I went with, um, nine speed. Nine speed and what I had on hand at that time was Dura Ace nine speed from I guess the early two thousand or something like that. Um and I was like, yeah, it's Dura Ace, it's nine speed, it's probably gonna be, you know, the the as far as the the chain goes, the cassette goes, I knew that I, I would be able to go all the way to Taiwan with just one chain, one cassette. Right. I was like, yeah, it seems like the, it seems like the, the right choice. And yeah, I was riding in, um, Uzbekistan or towards Uzbekistan, towards the Uzbekistani border from mm-hmm. Kazakhstan. And as I crashed several times because I was, I had skinny tires. I had 35 C's and, I was riding in the in the sandy sandy part of the road. The yeah. road was was in a very old road, broken down, um, and it's a very it's a very deserty part of of uh, Central Asia, and it was very sandy. And I was riding, and I was I crashed several times. It was it was nothing because I was not riding fast. Mm-hmm. So, but some sand actually got in the shifter, 
And when I made it to Uzbekistan, I could not shift anymore. Uh, just kind of gummed up the, the housing or something, huh? Just Yeah. It, <clears throat> I mean, something happened that, yeah, the, the mechanism was not working anymore. Mm. And I was super lucky that, uh, well, that the, the, the good thing was that that part of Central Asia is super flat. So yeah. I couldn't shift, but uh, it's not like I needed to shift. And then after a few days, I came to a bigger uh, Uzbekistani uh, town. And there, I was looking for a bike shop to fix the problem. And I, I ran into a guy. Oh, well, actually, someone in a bike shop called a guy that was the mechanic of the local triathlon club. Ah, nice. So that's how I learned that there's triathlon clubs in Uzbekistan. <laughs> I had no idea that it was a thing. Uh, and he actually spent the entire night. He, he went to the, to the, they have this, this, uh, small office, uh, for their club. And he, he went there with my shifter and he spent the entire night just working on, on the shifter. And if you've ever taken apart, uh, uh, Shimano or whatever, you know, uh, uh, road bike shifter, yeah. whether it's nine speed, 10 speed, 11 speed, it's, it's clockwork, you know, it's, it's just like really tiny pieces and it's like, best left for the Swiss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And after, after that night I could shift again. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I mean, which was amazing and, and yeah. And he like, he literally had this, uh, a sleeping bag in this little office and he slept for just a couple of hours that night and the rest of the time he just he just spent you know fixing the the shifter for free wow nice yeah crazy amazing that's kind of that yeah that's kind of of, of thing that only happens when you're you know traveling by bike that's the kind of individual that mm -hmm. you will that you will meet and they, they were like completely just like not interested in in in, in money at all they just want to help you and this is why traveling by back is just so awesome because that's when you experience how kind people actually are. Yeah. And when you're racing, you don't really have time for as much as that because you're, no, you're kind of go, that, go, go. Yeah. That's, that's the sad part about mm -hmm. racing is that you're for sure you're, you're, you're missing out on, on a lot of experiences that you can have, especially in, in remote places like Central Asia and, mm -hmm. or, you know, South America and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, that the di2 i um i feel very confident in my in my cool. di2 now and yeah i mean i still i still have this kind of old school mentality where i don't know if i would race a very important race okay uh like silk road and stuff like that with the di2 groups at maybe in it, in that in that instance um, mm -hmm. which was the one that I had uh, when I went to Southeast Asia. It's a group set that I've been riding for two years. Yeah. And possibly, too, because when you're in a race, it's like win or lose, you know. If, you, if, you, yeah. if it messes up, you're done. But on a bike tour, it's never really over. You can always flag down a truck, hitchhike yeah. if you exactly. have to, get things fixed, carry on. Yeah, yeah. but I completely understand the, that mentality. I mean, for years, I was like I would, I would never use uh, uh, electronic shifting and race or, and yeah. And the same, same goes for very long bike trips, like that are more than 10,000 miles, stuff like that. Or, uh, yeah, I mean, I was after that, 
after that uh, trip to Taiwan from Paris, which was almost 17,000 kilometers, um, I took notes and I was like, yeah, if I do this, if I ever do this again, I think I'm going to. I'm going to go with a square taper bottom bracket and like non index shifting. And you can, you can, you know, try and, and, and go as old school as possible. And it's something I definitely understand, but truth is, I think that any bipart can be subject to issues, you know, whether it's, it's proven, it's a proven system, for, for decades or whether it's something that just came out. Um, it's just a matter of how you put your bike together. It's a matter of how you, you maintain mm-hmm. it. Uh, and also it's a matter of, you know, how well you're, you're able to actually deal with the problem yourself. Yeah. I think and, your next, uh, your next tour should be with a three speed Sturmy Archer <laughs> internal gear <laughs> hub. And that's it. <laughs> Um, why did you, uh, I, I gotta ask about the one by 12 versus, was it one by 12, right? Versus two by 12. Why, you know, knowing that this would be one by 11, predominantly road based riding. Um, why you opted for the one by instead of a two and just personal curiosity, because, uh, I always thought the two buys are better for road because it gives you more options. Um, but yeah, I'd love to know why, why you went with what you went. I, um, I don't know. I've, I've. I really, since I started with one by, which is a while ago, I think it was seven, eight years ago, I kind of stuck with it. I mean, I, um, I only use two by on my road bikes now. Okay. And you know what? Actually, for a long time, I actually was on, uh, using one by on my road bikes as well. Ah, okay. Um, yeah, the thing is, yeah. The I think the range of of speed that you go to when you're touring is not it's not that big and you and you can actually can't you actually do a lot with one by eleven now yeah. and yeah I mean I think the if you I think I, yeah if you have forty by eleven it's it's quite actually easy to go forty k per hour mm-hmm. which is something that you rarely do when you're on especially a bike with port. bags yeah. Yeah. And if you have to climb, uh, yeah, I have, I have an ability to push really hard on the pedal. Uh, that, I mean, for sure, sometimes when I had, you know, 15 or 16% gradients in some parts of Thailand, it was extremely hard to actually be able to, to climb on the bike. But yeah, the fact that I'm in, and I'm in good shape and I'm quite mm-hmm. powerful, it means that, the yeah 40 by 42 is not very limiting for me uh especially um since i travel very light okay so i get that you know two buys is also a good choice and i'm actually for my next group set i'm on i'm gonna go back to two by because it's just more flexible it's like i had this one by group set and you kind of like when you have one by you have one by this mm-hmm. you don't really have the option of going to to um to buy so but now yeah for the next group set i'm like all right i i've asked for uh um two by 11 and then i'm like all right if i if i want to use one uh, uh um just a single 
chain ring, I can. If I want to use your double mm-hmm. chain ring, I can as well. So that's, oh, that's okay. Yeah, flexible. just a little bit more flexibility. Yeah? It's also the luxury of having, you know, so many bikes and so many groups set and be like, all right, we're this. Yeah. This is this is gonna be more, you know, on road with a little bit of very little gravel. So I can go with, you know, two by and this is mm-hmm. gonna be, you know, more gravel, so I can go with one by and so. but yeah, I think if I were if I only had one bike, which which had which was the case for a long time before I was a sponsored athlete, I would probably stick with one bike. Okay, cool. Very awesome. Um, what was your guys' packing setup for this trip? I mean, I assume you didn't have any camping gear because mostly Southeast Asia is quite cheap to find accommodation, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, what else did you guys pack? What did you carry? Yeah, we didn't have any camping gear. Uh, if, you, if people are not aware, um, you can find hotels in, in Laos for like, I don't know, 6 or $7. Yeah. Um, you can... I mean, most hotels in Thailand are going to be like fifteen dollars. Something. Like, I mean, I'm I'm talking U.S. dollars. Yeah. I mean, you're based in Canada. Yeah, I uh, so get it, USD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is uh, convenient because now euros and euros is the same, so I don't have to convert in my head. Um, yeah, so it's quite cheap. I think in the end we ended up averaging twenty dollars a night. Okay. Uh, but that's because we were, you know, on a sort of a vacation we were a couple so here and there we were kind of happy to have a nice hotel and when we had a uh, a rest day if there was a nice hotel with a pool we would go for the pool and stuff like that so we were not you know on a on a shoestring mm-hmm. uh, but if you're if you want to travel like super super cheap in South Asia it's definitely possible but yeah so no camping gear no uh, cold weather gear, which we ended up regretting. Okay. Um, because I mean, for sure, when you travel in December and January in Thailand, it's uh the chances that you encounter low temp- temperatures is almost non-existent. But we ended up going to northern Laos and northern Vietnam, and at that time of the year, it is a possibility that you can encounter um lower temperatures, and that's what happened. And yeah, it was, it was hard times because we were not ready for this at all. Uh, okay. We only, we, I, I think I had this, um, maybe, I don't even remember if I had, no, I didn't have even, even just a, a, a puffer, puffer vest. I think I hesitated and I thought I would bring it and didn't bring it. So basically I had a merino, um, long sleeve, base layer and my uh, rain jacket and that was that was pretty much it in terms of what I could do against the cold and I remember this one night in Laos which was bitterly cold and we were in that hotel and winter in Laos is pretty short so they're not really into you know having heating <laughs> heating yeah or isolation and, and it's like, so when it gets cold, it's super cold mm. inside. And even the restaurants, they don't, they're not, they're like out in the open. Everything is open, you know, cause I would say that 11 to 10 months uh, a year, it's, it's fairly hot. So they don't, mm-hmm. you know, take any precautions against the cold. And I was like, yeah, I can't, I don't think I can go and, and, and sit in a, in a restaurant where we, where, which will be out in the open. It's, I was, I don't know, it was like two or three degrees and I had just shorts and a, 
and a long sleeve base layer and rain jacket. And I was like, I don't think you can do that. So I went to the to the reception and I asked the receptionist if he actually had any clothes that he could lend me so that I could go outside and get some food. And it was super it was super nice because he actually gave me a, a, a coat and he gave Fanny a, um, a sweatshirt. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. And that's how we, we were able to actually go out and get some food. But yeah, definitely not prepared for the cold. Just, I think I had, um, if you want to know the details, I had two jerseys, uh, one base layer, one uh, pair of bib shorts, my rain jacket, three pairs of socks, um, a pair of shorts uh, for... Um, just after riding mm-hmm. and I only had, yeah, I had also a pair of flip flops, uh, which is always, always nice to have, especially in these, uh, warmer climates. Um, and a bathing suit as well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, fairly limited kit. Yeah. I was going to actually, I was on my thing as flip flops, sandals, anything like that. But yeah, it makes sense to have something in Southeast Asia because typically it's warm and you know, when you get to your hotel, you can throw the flip flops on and go out, and you don't have to walk around in mountain bike yeah, shoes. Yeah, it's not. It's really not that heavy. It's a. It's. It's a bit bulky in a way, mm-hmm. but it's not that heavy, so it's a, it's, a, it's a good. And it, I mean, it's all. It's always you're always compromising. And I feel like I feel like flip flops is a good compromise. Yeah, yeah. In 2020, I did a bike tour through the west of Canada and up to the north a bit, and um, I didn't bring flip-flops even. And that was my one regret was like, oh, man, end of the day, just to put on some flip-flops would have been really nice instead of, like, mountain bike shoes all the time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, so let's talk about the the route and the tour. Um, I know we kind of skirted a few things. Um you guys started fairly south in Thailand. Um, why not out of Bangkok? Uh, how did you get there? Did you just bus or train down south? Uh, what was yeah, that? Yeah, so we landed in Bangkok and then we trained to a small town called Prachuap um, Kirikan. Um, and the reason that we went there is that it's because it's one of my favorite, if not my favorite town in, in, in Thailand. Ah. It's, um, it's on the coast. It's uh, fairly not touristic. Uh, it has one of the best night markets that you can find in the country with all sorts of delicious food. And the thing is, um, I had raced in South Africa and Namibia a uh, few weeks earlier, right. and it was the end of a long season. And I was like, all right, I'm, 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 I'm down for a bike trip, but I need to relax a little bit first. And also, I knew that uh, starting from Bangkok would be a nightmare. Yeah. Bangkok is this like sprawling megalopolis. It's just like <laughs> huge. It never huge. sleeps. Yeah. And like if you start there, you, you're pretty much going to have a full day that is going to be not pleasant just to get outside of that huge city. And so we knew that we couldn't really start out of Bangkok. And I really wanted to go to Prachuap and also I wanted to be there with my girlfriend you know, because mm-hmm. I want I wanted her to see my favorite places in, in Thailand and in Laos and in Vietnam and this this is definitely a, a very important uh, part of Thailand for me one that I've been to many times and yeah I just wanted to to be there with her awesome and, and this so was her first trip right it was it was her first bike packing trip at Thailand. It was okay. her second 
trip to Southeast Asia. Mm. But she was she was training and busing at that time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so we started from uh, yeah south of south of Thailand, and we went all the way up to Chiang Mai, which is the second biggest city in Thailand. Um, it was super flat. The beginning of the I was looking at your map. Yeah, I was going to really say flat. like it looks yeah. like until you got most of the way to Chiang Chiang Mai, it was just plains and flat, 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 right? Super flat, like you, like you wouldn't imagine. It's like the flat is it was probably the flattest, some of the flattest uh, uh, rides I've ever done. Really crazy flat. And were you guys um, pushing big days, or was it kind of not at all? No, no, no. Especially in the beginning, where I was like, yeah, let's let's chill. I've had a long season. Let's just ride. I don't know, three, four hours a day, not too much. And also, we knew that the after the flatlands. It would get really serious because uh, yeah. we got to Chiang Mai. You did the main and home just I love Getting it. to Chiang Mai was not easy. Mm-hmm. At first, the, the weather was quite unstable. Uh, the rainy season lasted a bit longer than it usually does, so um, we get rained on quite a quite a bit at the beginning of the trip. Um, and it only stopped when we when we when we get to Chiang Mai. That's when it stopped raining. But we had this. Terrible, terrible ride to get there. And I was, I was, you know, checking my, my Strava to find itineraries to get to Chiang Mai because it was obviously not my first trip to Thailand yeah. and not my first time going to Chiang Mai. And I, I went on my, one of my older rides and I read my words, which I had forgotten at that time, which was like, hands down the hardest pass in all of my life. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> I, don't re- I don't recall that past. Was it actually that hard? It was like six years ago. Yeah. And in and the I'm time like, since right. you've done some pretty amazing races where yeah, you've had yeah. hard so passes. Like, so right? I told, I was, I told Fanny, all right, so we have this, we can do this or we can go around it, which would be a little bit longer. Right. And you know, she was like, yeah, I want to, I want to see what you're talking about. I want to see what's your, the hardest paved path that you've ever done. And well, sure enough, it's 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 a terrible, terrible climb. It's super hard. The gradients are crazy. They're absolutely crazy. Was and it switchback, we like full on? Uh, no. The problem is that there is no switchbacks, so the gradients are just like, yeah, let's go up that mountain. All right, it's it's straight ahead, or maybe not. Maybe it will be easier if it would there would would be switchback. But yeah, it's it was a, it was. Uh, extremely hard. Fanny ended up walking quite a bit. I um, I was able to do the whole thing actually riding, but there was a few times where I just had to, you know, I, w- I would ride for like five, six minutes, like full on just to be able to climb these sometimes 20, 22% gradients. Wow. And then I would just stop and I was sweating profusely and I was, I was out of breath. And I was like, wow. And then the downhill was, was actually super sketchy because oh. you know it's it is as steep but it's a very humid place so it can be slippery and then it started raining so it was it was a hell of a ride to get to Chiang Mai was that the um I saw there was one spot I think that you guys um I forget maybe it was in one of Fanny's posts because I was looking at her Instagram as well um was it that downhill where you guys had to stop and just like it was too dangerous or there was somewhere. So what happened is, we, um, so I was ahead. 
because Fanny was walking quite a bit and I was able to ride. Because um, I had lower gearing too. She has mm. she has road bike gearing, so it was, right. was, was was even harder for for her. Um, and yeah, at some point, uh, I know that she's very cautious descending, so I'm I'm less cautious. I'm a bit faster descending. Um, and I was like, all right, I basically when we saw that we're not going at the same pace, um, she was like, yeah, you 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 can go all the way to Chiang Mai, and I'll I'll, I'll see you at Chiang Mai. And then I started the downhill. And the downhill was so sketchy that I stopped and I was like, I want to make sure that she's okay. I'm not, right. there's no way that I'm going to ride all the way to Chiang Mai without knowing that she made it okay uh, out, of that, yeah. out of that downhill, you know, because cause I barely made it out okay, you know. Yeah, that's one way to end a relationship. <laughs> yeah. So I, I stopped because um, yeah it's, uh, in the middle of the downhill because the, the problem with the downhill is the first part which is super super steep with you know uh, um, very very tight corners and a road that can that can be slippery and um, yeah there was a, there was a cafe at some point and I stopped there and I was like I'm gonna wait there because I, I'm I'm not gonna have the tranquility, the peace of mind to ride all the way to 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 Chiang Mai, knowing that Fanny has to deal with this terrible downhill. And I stopped there, and I told I sent her a text to tell to tell her that where I was stopped, and then she joined me, and and that's when it started raining a lot. Ah, okay. started raining a lot, and we knew that it would be dark soon. And Fanny was like, "Yeah, it's I don't I don't want to do this." I mean, if I can if I can find a taxi here, I'll get to Chiang Mai on on a taxi. And it was like I I fully agree, and I fully support your decision. Um, I mean, I'm gonna keep writing uh, because I'm a very stubborn indiv- individual, <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, I kept writing, which is not was no fun at all, really no, I- no fun at all. Uh, because you know it was was you know pouring rain, and then make, making it to Chiang Mai in the in the rush hour traffic. Ah, yeah, no fun at all. But I just I just really wanted to to keep riding, yeah. and I understood that. I mean, it, there was no there was nothing at stake, so I perfectly understand that Fanny just was like, yeah, I don't. Why would I ride one as a taxi right there? Mm-hmm. And she. And she got on the taxi, and actually, I uh, got there first. Nice. I uh, I lived in thanks to the traffic, the, the traffic jam in Chiang Mai. I lived in Malaysia for seven years, and <clears throat> when that Southeast Asian rain comes down, it can be miserable because sometimes it just doesn't let up either, and it's heavy. It's just hard. Yeah. Do were, uh, were you? Did you settle down in uh, KL? I was um, three years in Kota Baru in the northeast yeah. near the Prentian Islands. So one year in Malacca, yeah. and then three years in KL. All right, yeah. Malacca. That's nice. That's a nice place. Yeah, that was teaching there, so that was good. All good right. times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super hot though, Malaysia. <sighs> wow. Yeah, even brutal. hotter than Thailand. Yeah, yeah. Especially because Thailand, you can get up in the hill. Well, I mean, Malaysia has mountains and hills, but you tend yeah. to seem to always be in the valleys. Um, yeah. So Malaysia. Yeah, the heat is brutal, Malaysia. Yeah, but yeah. 
And on that yeah. note, I did the Mei Hong San Loop in 2018. I know you yeah. did it once prior to this trip, I think probably 12 years ago or six, whatever it was when you went. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, six years ago, I think. Six years yeah, ago. Six, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was, uh, what was it like this time around? How did, uh, how did Fanny enjoy it? I think it's pretty un- unbelievable ride. I mean, it's just a... It's, it's, it's quite challenging. It's quite hard, really. Yeah. Um, we're, we're unlucky uh, that the way it happened is that we're out on the loop on the weekend. Oh, okay. We started riding on a Saturday. And yeah, Saturday and Sunday... Uh, it's so busy uh, going to Pi too, right? Because everybody's going there. Uh, the ride to Pi was no fun at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, just so many cars, and and yeah, I mean the people uh, people that have never been to Thailand have to have to understand that again, it is not a third world country. There is a real middle class there, and middle class means that they live in they live in Chiang Mai. They have good jobs. They have cars. Mm-hmm. They have nice cars. And on the weekend, what they want to do is they want to go outside of the city um, and they want to go to the mountains yeah. and, they, and they go to Pi and they just like, they just visit, you know, uh, um, it, and which means that if you do the Maya Ong Son loop on a weekend, it's going to be quite busy. Yeah, I think I started, it was a Monday or something and it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't nearly it was as bad ideal. getting to Pi. Just lots of yeah, tuk-tuks, lots of tour buses type things, but... Yeah, and the first time that I did it was not on weekend. It was and it was perfect. But yeah, that we we did it, and for sure enough, the first day going to Pi was not enjoyable for me because too much traffic. Mm-hmm. I mean, the views are the views are great, but yeah. yeah, too much traffic. And I think the the better ride uh, was um, yeah, as soon as it was on the on the on the Monday. Sunday was also quite busy, and then from my young son was good. My mm. young son, uh, nice ride, and um, and then instead of going back to Chiang Mai on that loop, we we went uh, further north, and we which means that we added climbs. Yeah, because I, I saw and I think I read too that instead of coming all the way down the mountain from Doithanon and hitting the highway, you kind of started taking some of these more back roads type things, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we 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 left and I wanted to go all the way to the top of Doithanon because the first time that I did the loop, I didn't go all the way because I overheated. I'm in the same boat. I didn't I, do it either. <laughs> yeah, I was because it was... It was summer. It was, I mean, it was, it was the the hotter month of the year. Yeah. It was um, April, and April in in Thailand is just unbelievably, unbelievably hot. Yeah. And and I I I was riding the Mayonsen Loop, and I was doing really big days. I basically was, you know, riding you know ten ten to twelve hours on 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 the loop every day, and yeah, going to Chiang Mai, I overheated, and I was there was no way. That would have been able. I was cramping up, and there was no way that I would have been able to go all the way to the top of Doyentanon. So I didn't do it that time, which means that, yeah, this time I was really determined to go all the way uh, to the top. Fanny didn't really care about doing that, so I um, we uh, split ways at that and junction all the way to the top. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, it ended up being the hottest ride of the trip 
because mm. I uh, had to go up to. And, I mean, yeah, people need uh, numbers. I think the Doyen Sunline is 20K of climbing at 9% average. Yeah. It's- so that's a brutal climb. That's, I mean, it's, it's relentless. Uh, and it's just like really, really long. The Mei Hong Sun Loop in general has, for people to realize, you know, if uh, I think I did it in five days of riding. Every day it was like 100-something kilometers with, you know, 2,200 to 3,500 meters of gain. Like just huge climbs every day. Doesn't end. So, yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's absolutely ridiculous. But and, on that same note, that, it's freaking awesome. <laughs> it is. It yeah. really is. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, and and... Yeah, basically, on, on the regular loop, once you're done with Doyen Tanan, you're done. Yeah. You just go back to Chiang Mai. You, you go down, and then it's flat, and then you get you in Chiang Mai. Um, what happened is that for me, I was not done at all because I was not, we were not going to Chiang Mai. We were going further up north. And so after climbing Doyen Tanan, I had a bunch of climbing to do still. Uh. And it ended up being like, I don't remember the, the exact numbers but i know that i climbed more than four thousand meters that day oh man brutal yeah yeah that was that was brutal but i'm glad that i did it because i think that the problem with the loop is that yeah once you're done with Tanan and you had to go back to chiang mai it's kind of boring yeah i got um, to the highway and i said screw this and i just put yeah. my bike in a bus like one of those open back tuk-tuks big bus sure. like massive yeah. tuk-tuk things because i was like I don't want to drive down the highway for like 50 kilometers. What's the point? Like, it's just yeah, shit. No, like, there's no point at all. Yeah. Exactly. And that's something that we were not willing to do. So I'm glad that I, that I took this itinerary because we, it's, it's absolutely stunning as well. And it's parts of, of the Chiang Mai province that you don't really see mm-hmm. when you're a tourist. Uh, but yeah. That's a bunch more climbing for sure. Ah, uh, good to know. I'm gonna have. I'm gonna go back at one point someday. So uh, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll keep an eye open for that. Check out your Strava. Um, I know going up into Chiang Rai. I think I saw you posted that there was it was more difficult or something. Something occurred that was made it more challenging than you expected. I thought um, if I remember correctly, I was reading and it was like we expected it to be pretty easy riding or pretty normal. Mm, let me remember. Don't remember. Shanghai. So yeah, so we left. We left Chiang Mai. We had a rest day in Merim, if I remember correct. Uh, I can't remember. Sorry. Okay, fair enough. How was the? Uh, how was it heading into? Um, actually, just let me check my notes here. Um, forget where we are. Oh, yeah, we could talk about the border. So I know like uh, crossing the border into Laos, it's uh, typically really difficult on a bike, right? It's just kind of a pain in the ass. And uh... Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I mean, my take on this is that they have this. It's not like a, it's not a scam, but it's, I would say it's sort of a racket. Right. That um, when you're on a car, you get to that border checkpoint outside of Thailand and you, and you drive on that bridge. There's, there are four bridges over the Mekong leading from Thailand to Laos, and they're called friendship bridges. And yeah, if you get, if you're in a car, you just, yeah, get outside of Thailand into Laos driving on the bridge. If you're on a bus, then you're a pedestrian and you get, um, 
to the border checkpoint, then outside, and then you have to take a bus that will drive you to Laos on the bridge. Which, all right, let's say it makes sense. What does not make sense is that if you're on a bike, you're supposed to actually be on the bus to Laos, yeah. which does not make sense because why, why would you need a bus when you have your bike? I would, I, I can't, I kind of understand that they don't want, you know, people walking on the bridge because it's a fairly long bridge. There, there's not a ton of traffic, but you know, there's cars. Maybe they don't want that. All right. Mm-hmm. But you have a bicycle, you have your vehicle. Why, why would you need? It's, it just seems overly complicated to, you know, put your bicycle in the bus and then, cause you have to wait for that bus to leave. So you've crossed that border. You're outside of Thailand and then you're like, all right. I want to go to Laos and they're like, yeah, get on that bus and it would leave at some point, you know, when it's full. And also it's 200 baht, which is like, I don't know, five, five or six dollars. And you're like, mm, yeah, that sounds kind of expensive for a bus, which I'm going to be on for not even five minutes. So yeah, for me, it's definitely a racket. Uh, and I knew that this racket was in place because the, the, there was one time where I actually put my bike on that bus. But okay. when I chatted with the, I chatted with some, with some cyclists, uh, after the, like, right after doing this, I was in, I was in the, in this, uh, town in, in Laos, the border town, and other cyclists, they were on a tandem. And they were like, they had no space for the tandem on the bus. So uh, what happened is that one of the of the 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 man of the couple actually got on the bus and the and the woman rode the bike on the bridge. I was like, here it is, you can ride the bike on the bridge, you know. Apparently it's okay for it's tandems. <laughs> yeah, and so I told Fanny, all right, there's a racket yeah. on this border. They're they're going to ask us to put the bikes on the bus. We're not gonna listen. We're not going to do this. We're going to get on the bikes and we're going to ride the bikes. And so I kind of briefed her. So we get our stamps out of Thailand, get our passports back. And then we're walking with the bikes and they're talking. Fanny's, I think Fanny's like just behind me and I'm walking. They start talking to me and I have my sunglasses and I have my, uh, my headphones and I'm, I pretend that I don't see them, that I don't hear them. Yeah, yeah. And then I see that Fanny is stopping and then I'm like, I go to Fanny. I'm like, just pretend they don't exist and just like follow me. And we walk, we walk, we walk. We just don't pay attention to the people that want us to get on the bus and they're showing, uh, they're showing a sign to Fanny, which is a, a, a sign with um with a bicycle and the bicycle is barred. Right. Uh, and I'm like, don't pay attention to them. And <laughs> we, just, we just walk and we walk to the bridge. And once once we're on the bridge, we get on the bikes and we start riding. Nobody and, chased you. And nobody chased us. And I think the nobody chased us because first of all, they're not um Southeast Asians are not very aggressive people. And yeah. you, I mean, you you know that. Sure. But they're quite friendly and they're not, yeah, they don't, they don't want to get in a fight with you at all. They don't want to yell at you or yeah. 
And when there's a scam, I mean, the way that I see Southeast people in Southeast Asia is that very rarely are they going to try to scam you. Uh, I would say that 99% of the scams are about transport. And a lot of them are in Vietnam, for example. They're, they have a little bit, I think, of a different mentality there. Okay. And they're going to try. And if they don't fail, if they don't succeed, if they fail, that's okay. You know, just carry on. Hold, yeah. yeah. They hold no grudges at all. Yeah. They're like, all right, I'll try it. I failed. No, no problem. You're still a, you're still a customer and I'm still going to do my job and I'm still going to, I mean, I, I tried to scam you. It didn't work, but you know, let's still make. You played, you played the game. You won. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, yeah. And I think that the way that I see this, this, this racket is that it's, I don't know if the border guards have a part in it. I think they're just kind of turning a blind eye to it, but I don't think they're, they really care. I don't think they're benefiting from it. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that they're very adamant that you are going to get on that bus because I don't think that they get a cut. Mm -hmm. And since it's just, you know, bus people, they don't really have any authority and there's nothing that they're going to do. Any, uh, any issues on the Laos side with like the, the stamp fee, you know how they, uh, like I've had friends come into Laos or Cambodia and they get told they need to pay for a stamping fee. And most people just give up eventually, give them the $5 and make, you know, they're happy. Everybody gets through. Do you guys ever have any issues? Yeah. It's not really an issue though. It's yeah. There are always going to be no fees that are official or not. Uh, uh, oftentimes they're not that official, but yeah, it's like a dollar, yeah, maybe two. And you're like, is there is it is there really a point actually arguing about one or two dollars? It's not like they're millionaires. Yeah, and if you fight and argue and get pissed off, I mean, all you're doing is ruining your own day for what a little tiny bit of money, right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's uh, you're not. You're not going to get away with it. I yeah. mean, if I had some friends it. set up their tent inside oh. the border crossing because they're like, we're not paying for a stamp fee. And so they started <laughs> setting up the tent. And finally, the guy's like, okay, just go, just go. <laughs> get out. Yeah, you know, I'd rather pay one dollar. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Um, and that's, that's, that's funny about, about traveling in these countries where life is probably five times as cheap as mm-hmm. Europe or North America is that. First time that I was traveling there, I was, I was fighting for every penny. Yeah. I was like, I know this is not the price. I'm not going to pay that kind of price. And you end up, you know, arguing about this and that. And you, and you lose a lot, you lose a lot of time and you lose a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to France and I was like, wow, everything is like so expensive. And I, I never, I never argue, argue about mm-hmm. it. You know, <laughs> I, rem- I remember that. I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was walking the streets of Paris and I was with a friend and we were like, yeah, let's drink some champagne. And I went into that, you know, little store and I bought a bottle of champagne. It was like 30 bucks. And then it was like, why was I, I mean, a, a couple of weeks ago, I was arguing about, you know, 10 or 20 cents. And here I am spending, you know, $30 just for <laughs> You know, drinking a couple, couple glasses of champagne. And yeah, so yeah. now when I go back, um, if I know they're trying to, you know, 
amp up the price a little bit. It's just like a few, maybe $1, maybe half a dollar. I'm like, all right, I know. I know it's not the price. I don't want to discuss this. I, I know that I have more money than they do. Mm-hmm. And I know that probably they need it. They needed more than I do. And I'm like, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. A little, a little bit of bargaining just for the culture aspect is good. But if you start really hammering at them, it's not, not worth it. Huh? Yeah. Uh, we had this. So what happened, uh, cause we're talking about border crossing. What happened is sure. that, so during COVID Laos completely changed, uh, all the rules about, uh, getting into its territory and you cannot not get to Laos from Vietnam without a visa anymore. Oh, okay. You need to prearrange a visa in Hanoi if you want to get into Laos. But nobody knows this because uh, these are new rules. These are COVID rules. Mm. And there is no, nothing, nothing about, about these rules on the, on the website of the, of the embassy of Laos in, in, in Vietnam or any, this information is not online at all. Fair enough. And so we found, we found that only by, uh, um, going to the border and being denied access to Laos, entry into Laos. Oh, that and they were like, no, you have to go back to Hanoi and you have to have a visa if you want to get into Laos. And, is- and I know we're jumping ahead, but you guys were on the 15 day, uh, entry, visa free entry, right? Into Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. So you had like a ticking the, the, clock. Yeah. The, the, the time was running out. And, uh, and actually, we just had, uh, I think, two or three days to arrange this visa. And people need to understand that even if Hanoi is only 250K away from that border, 250K when you're in Vietnamese buses is a full day. Yeah. It's 12 hours of being on buses. And uh, yeah. So we ended up riding on, on buses and taxis for um, two or three days just to make it to we left we left the bikes at the border um, and to meet yeah, to make it to, to Hanoi and back. And we got into that that bus that would uh, get us to a city where we could get another bus to Hanoi. Okay. There was no way that we could get straight right. from the border to Hanoi. And, and that bus drops us into the city. And it doesn't drop us into uh, uh, a bus station, you know. It's <laughs> like, yeah, there's a, a guy that comes in the bus and he's like, taxi, taxi, Hanoi, taxi, Hanoi. And I'm like, hmm, that is weird. I don't know if we should get in that taxi, you know. Another one of those that rackets, seem, right? Yeah, that is, that doesn't seem very legit. Probably the the driver has a cut of the money that is going to make mm-hmm. him the tourists. So at the beginning, I don't want to get into that taxi, and then I see two old people that get into the taxi, and then I'm like, ah, okay, maybe this guy picks up people here that need to make a connection to the other to bus station. To, yeah, maybe. To, yeah. To the, to get to the other bus station. So uh. I know that, I mean, there's usually in, in, in bigger cities, there's usually several bus mm-hmm. stations, one in the North, one in the South, or maybe one in the East, one in the yep. West. This way they don't have to drive across the city and be stuck in traffic when they go to, to another place. And, and it's just more convenient. And I'm like, so maybe, 
our bus is going to northern bus station and we need to go to the southern bus station and this taxi is just going to be the link between <laughs> the two. So in the end, we get in the taxi. The taxi drops the, the two older people near a hospital and then we're like, yeah, we're, we're, we're telling him that we want to go to the bus station that you know, dessert that is gonna uh, uh, have the bus to Hanoi. And he's like, yeah, 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 okay, okay, okay. And he's driving, and we're checking our phones, and we're like, <laughs> he's not driving towards that bus station. The city's There's gone. Something, <laughs> yeah, something is wrong. And so we're driving, and so several times we're like, we show uh, uh, um, our phone with the, tra- uh, the Google Translate translation of bus station in Vietnamese and we show him, you know, bus station. I'm like, yeah, 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 okay, okay, okay. So, he seems to understand what we want, so we trust them for a little bit of time and then we're like, we're checking Google Maps and we're like, no, he is not going to that bus station. He is going to the highway. He's going to the motorway. He's going to take you to, to like, Hanoi, right? Before, <laughs> yeah, right before, because, because at some point, yeah, one part of the story that I forgot yep, is yep. that because at some point, he takes uh, uh, a piece of paper and a pen and he writes Hanoi $100. Oh. And we're like, uh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Bus station, not Hanoi. Because we're not going to spend $100 yeah. to get to Hanoi. People need to understand that $100 in Vietnam is a huge amount of money. That's, that's basically what you're going to spend in five days in Vietnam. So... There's no way they're going to pay $100 for what would be probably a three-hour drive. And we're like, no, 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 bus station. And he's like, okay. But when we see that he's going to the motorway, we're like, stop, 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 stop everything. Stop the cart. Uh, and he shows us again the, the, the piece of paper, Hanoi, $100, and then I ask, I try to get out of the car. I'm like, no, the, my, my side is locked. And I ask Fanny if her side is locked. She's like, no, I can open the door. I'm like, open the door. We're out. We are mm-hmm. out of this car. I don't want to talk to that guy anymore. I don't want to bark in. I don't want to ask, ask him to get us to that bus station. We're going to get out of that car and we're going to, and we're going to order an actual taxi that we know is going to get us to that bus station. So we get out of the car, we start walking, it's, it's raining outside, it's freezing, there's like this really strong wind, and we're, it's super cold, and we're, I'm just furious, and I'm walking just in a random direction just to get away from that taxi. Yeah. It ends up that the guy is following us, and he's asking for money, and I'm like, there is no way that you are going to get any money for just driving us around and driving us actually further away from the bus station where we mm-hmm. wanted to go, you know? So the guy sees that I'm really pissed off, um, and he and he actually gives up and he rides away with his, with this with this cab. Um, and there's one thing that really changed in Asia, in Southeast Asia, and I think pretty much um, all over the world when you're traveling, is that you have now services like Uber, mm-hmm. Grab, Lyft, stuff like that, where you know you are not gonna get ripped off. Yeah. Because the app does not know if you're a tourist, a Vietnamese, a Thai, whatever. Mm-hmm. And now 
things have changed completely. You can actually travel and know that you're paying a fair price and that you're gonna act, you're gonna get to where you're supposed to go. Yeah. I remember when I when I lived in Kuala Lumpur, man, it was a conversation I had with taxi drivers all the time. I'd say, you know, like I could take an Uber and it would cost me two dollars, three dollars for this jaunt. You guys are you know, I'm okay to pay you guys taxi drivers five dollars, fifteen ringgits. But when you see me as a tourist, you guys are asking for fifty because you see, oh, foreigner. I'm like, I live yeah. here. I'm not stupid. I know the I know the price structure, you know, I and I know that you guys are, you know, you're trying to make ends meet, but I'm like, I'm not going to pay 50 when I can pay 10 or 15, you know, like, and I know that that's still good money. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, for sure. Same thing happens everywhere. Um, but yeah, very much in Southeast Asia. Definitely a game changer. Is yeah. Um, now you can, you can actually, not that I use uh, uh, cabs a lot, but mm-hmm. yeah, whenever you, you have to, use a cab somewhere in, in, in Bangkok or in Hanoi or in KL or whatever, uh, you can actually do it and know that you're not going to yeah. get ripped off. What was, uh, you got to tell me about the uh, QL4C because I only ever heard of it when I saw your post and I don't know much about it. I know it's supposed to be pretty epic. Um, and I think, unfortunately, you guys didn't ride it or didn't ride most of it. I would say it's it's the the Vietnamese equivalent of the Mayang Son Loop. Okay. But it's even more beautiful. Oh wow! Okay, it's uh, um the the way that I recall it, it is as challenging, if not more challenging, uh, because the the roads are definitely uh, in uh, in uh, worse shape than they are in Thailand. Mm-hmm. People need to know that the roads in Thailand are <laughs> some of the best in the world. Yeah, they just have amazing roads there. It's like much better than the U.S., for example. Um. But yeah, Vietnam is is completely different in terms of their road network and intra- infrastructure. But yeah, what happened? I I was traveling. I was in Vietnam, and I think it was in um, 2016. And I was in Hanoi. Uh, I was waiting for my Chinese visa because I was going to Hong Kong, and um, I uh, met a guy because I wanted to share a room in the hotel because Hanoi was. Uh, fairly expensive mm-hmm. and I was traveling on a budget and I met this uh, Vietnamese guy that spoke perfect French and we ended up sharing a room in Hanoi just to cut the cost and we talked and he was a guide actually and he was like there's one road that is probably the most beautiful road in all of Vietnam and if you're cycling you have to go there and this road that he was telling me, uh, me about was the QL4C uh, which is also called the Hazong Loop. Okay. And um, I'd never heard of it. It's, and it's funny, it's like, uh, I think it's getting popularity because now it has that name of Hazong Loop and people are talking about it uh, more than they were six or seven years ago. And he told me, yeah, you need, you need, to, you need to see that. You need to ride there. And it's, uh, it's a place. So we really wanted, I really wanted to go back there. Uh, and I still want to go back there because in my, the way that I recall it, it was like, I was, I was, I was blown away pretty much all the time. And, uh, yeah, very mountainous, remote parts of Northern Vietnam, very close to the Chinese border, uh, s- s- very small villages, not that much traffic mm-hmm. considering, uh, the, what you usually get in Vietnam. And yeah, what happened is that, 
after so it was four four days in Laos and um I don't know, probably another four days in Vietnam, we were like, This is this is not working out. It's cold. It's really cold. And we checked the weather in uh in Hazong and it was even colder. Forecast was rainy. Oh, and geez. we were like I know it's I know it's a beautiful road, but I know that if you know northern Vietnam, it can be quite foggy as well. Yeah, if it's raining too, right? It gets really... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to be like miserable to go there and then miserable riding it and not even see what's happening because it's it's just like fog all over. Uh, People have been to Sapa, which is uh, one of the the biggest tourist attractions in Vietnam. They, they, They probably know that it can be you know, when when it's foggy, it can be foggy for several days, and then you don't have any, you don't see any of the views. Mm-hmm. And we're, we, so we discussed it with Fanny. It was like it's it sure is a very beautiful road, but it's also very very hard and challenging. And and if we if we spend time going there and riding it, and then and then going back to Laos. The time that we're going to spend there is time that we are not going to spend back in Thailand where it's going to be nice and sunny mm-hmm. and we're on a vacation, you know, it was, it was, it was an, an advent, a vi- vacation slash adventure, but we wanted to have a good time. It was more about having a good time than really being on an adventure. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, we're like, all right. Um, we signed up for having, you know, uh, nice, warm, sunny days of, of riding in Thailand and having, you know, good food and good hotels and, and Laos and Vietnam, I would say are probably in terms of, uh, of scenery more beautiful than Thailand, mm-hmm. but traveling out, traveling at traveling there sorry is not as relaxing right the standards of of the hotels in laos is very low um and the food is definitely not as good as in thailand mm-hmm. um so it's still a very very pleasant place to travel it's just not as relaxing as thailand not as enjoyable as thailand for 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 a vacation, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's great to have an adventure. Uh, and Vietnam, you can find good hotels for sure. And, and the food can be amazing as well. But there's much more traffic. There's much more traffic. The roads are not as good. Mm-hmm. And it's very busy. There's 100 million people live in, in, in Vietnam. And it's it's not as big as Thailand, so density of population is is much higher, and so there's there's people pretty much everywhere, and the traffic is a bit hectic. Everybody's constantly honking, constantly. It's yeah. Just like, yeah. And so after a few days in Vietnam and, and a few days in Laos, we were like, okay, we're having a good time. But I think we were having a better time in Thailand. Okay. And basically yeah. the, cal- the calculation was like, all right, okay. If we cut short that part of the trip in Vietnam, then we're going to have um, more time that we can spend in Thailand. 
and that's probably the part the the country that we're enjoying the most so let's do that let's just like give up on the on the ql4c and the has on loop <laughs> and let's just let's just go back to where it's warm and sunny and i mean yeah we we, we were running away from winter in paris so the goal was to you know have warm temperatures not freezing our asses off yeah. in the mountains of, of vietnam and then heading back, so you guys cut into, after you got this whole visa thing sorted out, you got back into Laos, and then it looks like you made your way towards the plains of Jar- Plain of Jars, as I was called, I believe. Yeah, exactly, yeah. We had, actually, the, our second stint in Laos was, um, was better than the first one. Um, so it was, I think, my fourth or fifth time in, in, in Laos, okay. and the country has changed a lot. Yeah, I heard the north is just, like, years. construction central, right? Like, from France, it's just nonstop. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Like, uh, Laos used to be the quietest place that you can imagine, the quietest place in Asia. And now it's just full of Chinese trucks, which are, uh, bringing, uh, goods to Vientiane or, uh, bringing, uh, rubber from the plantations in Laos back mm-hmm. to China. And I mean, it's not like there's thousands of trucks. Uh, there, mm-hmm. but it's just like the contrast between how it was five years ago and how it is now. It's it, re- it was it's completely different, mm. and the roads are the the shape of the road has worsened a lot because because of that you know heavy traffic, and it used to be a bike a, a bike touring paradise because you had nice paved roads with no traffic at all, but. The, the boom in the in the in the Lao economy and uh, and also the the demographic the fact that population is increasing there increasing rapidly it means that yeah there's just more scooters and more cars and, mm-hmm. and more trucks and it's like it's not as quiet as it used to be and that's that first stint um, in Laos and northern in the northern part of Laos which is adjacent to China um, was not as as idyllic as uh, I imagined it, uh, definitely not as pleasant as it used to be. Okay. And then when we went back to Laos, we went to places where I'd never been before and places that are not really touched by the the surplus of activity that you have near the Chinese border. And we had a really good time actually on our uh, uh, second second trip to, to Laos. I think that the first the first trip was four rides and the second trip was like maybe five rides something like that and we we found some really nice quiet roads with no no heavy traffic that were in good shape uh we went through a flooded forest which was absolutely stunning a what forest a flood it was flooded okay they, they built yeah they built a dam they built a dam there for um uh to get some electricity and so there, uh, there are parts that are completely flooded. Oh, neat. Um, and you see these dead trees that are em- emerging out of the water. It's a very unusual landscape. Mm. And uh, super, super quiet part of Laos. Um, and so we had, a, we had a really good time there. I know that it was Fanny's first time in Laos. She was not really very positive about Laos after... Uh, our our first the thing northern there. part yeah yeah and then after after you know the 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 second time she was like all right 
now I understand why you like flowers so much. Mm. It is a truly amazing part of Southeast Asia if you're, yeah, if you're not bothered by trucks all the time. Yeah. Yeah. When I was there in 2012, it was like, or 2011, I was still in that like backpacker, you know, hit the big cities and take night buses. And, and then when I went back, uh, in 2019 with my wife, um, we were living in Cambodia for a while. Uh, we went back for Thai New Year or Songkran, um, Southeast Asian New Year, I should say. Um, and rented a motorbike and that was so much more fun just to like zip around and take off back roads and stuff. You know, we only had a few days, but it was beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and, and I'm not, I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the fact that uh, there's a, a, a boom in the economy is a bad thing. It's, it certainly is a good thing for the people. It's just not a good thing for the by tourist, but mm-hmm. Who cares? Um, there's something that's still sad about this is that, sure, there's more money there, but it's only benefiting a fraction of the population. Yeah. In terms of corruption, Laos is one of the worst countries in the world, so you can be sure that any money that comes from the Chinese economy is just going to a few people. Yeah. And it's just, there's still a, a long way to go before uh, uh May, the the bulk of the population in Laos has a better life, mm-hmm. benefits from a better life uh, because of the of the way that the economy is developing there. Yeah, I think a lot of it is that, uh, what's it called? Is it the Belt Road Initiative? Or it's like that, you know, the new Silk Road that China's trying to build across the world. And um, a lot of that money is probably ending up in officials' pockets and not really the people. So it's unfortunate that way, but... Yeah, yeah. There's two two uh, uh, projects actually. Um, there's one uh, which is supposed to link China with um, the rest of the Southeast Asia all the way to Singapore on high speed trains. Mm. So basically, now if you're traveling to Southeast Asia, um, what you could do basically the the best that you could do is go from um, Probably Chiang Mai to Singapore. Oh wow! Uh, through Bangkok, and uh, and then if you wanted to go from Hanoi to Singapore, it was it was definitely not possible uh, without hopping on a bus at some point mm-hmm. because uh, the Vietnamese railway and the Thai railway were not connected. Ah, okay. Um, and then yeah, the, the the project that the Southeast Asian nations and the, and China. Uh, have um, and it's 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 actually it, it happened actually so there was no railway at all in Laos until 2017. Oh wow! Okay. So and when I was I mean last year la- like a few months ago when I was in Laos and I saw railway tracks I was like what is that? <laughs> there is an actual railway in Laos. When did that happen? And right. they started building building it actually in 2017, uh-huh. which was the last time that I was there. And it's now in service. You can now actually go from uh, Vientiane to uh, Yunnan, um, the capital of Yunnan. I don't remember the name. Uh, but yeah, basically what the Chinese want to do is they want to link China to the rest of Southeast Asia mm-hmm. uh, with high-speed trains. And obviously... Great news for Southeast Asia because it means that uh, uh, the, the an influx 
of Chinese tourists. And Chinese tourists are already a big part of tourism mm-hmm. in yeah. Thailand, for example. Even Cambodia, man, they were there was yeah. a lot of Chinese tourism money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, big uh big uh win win deal because the Southeast Asian nations are gonna get uh, a lot of Chinese tourists and it's and it's gonna be uh very uh m- very much uh it's gonna be easier, much easier for uh China to to Develop trades with Southeast mm-hmm. Asian nations, and then yeah, parallel with that, they also have a project, a new Silk Road uh, that will link uh, China with uh, Central Asia and Europe. Yeah, I think when I was in Cambodia, also is when they first reopened the train line across the border from Cambodia to Thailand after like forty years because of the the whole Khmer Rouge thing, and uh, yeah. in the seventies, like it took a long time for them to find a reopen things you know and make it so it's working so um, yeah and it's a great thing yeah for southeast asia and mm-hmm. for especially for people traveling in southeast asia to be able to travel on trains just stay i on mean the it's train. my second yeah. second most favorite way of traveling mm-hmm. uh, uh after bicycle and yeah it's much much more pleasant than than buses I highly recommend the Trans-Siberian in the uh, open carts. You know, they call Platz cart oh. in Russian. It's yeah. uh, it's the one where you're opening. You just everybody's around and super fun. It was nice. I did that uh, some a decade and a half ago. <laughs> um, so heading back into Thailand, you guys once again. It seems like mostly flat. Um, back in the plains, right? Yeah. And yeah, mostly flat. Um, weather was getting uh, a bit better, but I would say that yeah, all in all. We were we were not super lucky with the weather. We okay. were there for two and a half months. So as I said, uh, at the beginning of the trip was raining, raining quite a bit, um, and then we had that cold wave through Laos and and Vietnam. Um, so basically, yeah, we had pleasant, you know, hot summer days um, on the Mai Ong San loop, and then. For the rest of uh, the rest of the the Thailand stint to Chiang Rai, and then it got a little bit better when we through the middle part of the of second stint in Laos, um, and then yeah, a little bit of rain also uh, at the beginning of our second stint in Thailand. Uh, yeah, flatlands for sure um, until we got to the Khao Yai National Park which is not that far from Bangkok. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's, and, um, there's some mountains there too, right? A little bit, it looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a few mountains. And we went to that national park, the Khao Yai National Park, and we wanted to see elephants. Ah. Again, we were unlucky because I think it was a Saturday or a Sunday. And it's not far from Bangkok. So right. all the tourists from Bangkok uh, went, are going to the national park on the weekend. And we were we were there on the weekend. It was quite busy. It's 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 beautiful scenery, um, jungle, uh, mountains, jungle, uh, but so much traffic because of the of the the weekend. And yeah, Fanny was very enthusiastic about elephants. And after probably I don't know thirty minutes in the national park, <laughs> uh, seeing the traffic, I was like. There is no way that we're going to see elephants. It's impossible. There's just too many cars. And so we rode to that national park and we were nearing, uh, uh, the, the end of that road going outside of the national park. And, uh, yeah, we were 
chatting with the with Fanny going uh up this false flat and I was like yeah I think um I think it's not going to happen we're going to we have a few kilometers still in the in, in the national park and I think that it's just too it's just too busy to see any elephants and as as I was saying this it was actually one of the first time that the road was super quiet and then I I was so I was looking at Fanny and then I turned around to look at the road and there it is big ass elephant like this huge huge elephant with the yeah much bigger than than the ones that you see that are in captivity in the, right. in, the, in northern Thailand pl- places where actually you shouldn't go because you know they keep elephant captive and it, it's something yeah. that uh, shouldn't happen but yeah it's like really huge creature just quietly crossing the street crossing that road and I'm like we were we stopped we immediately stopped how far were you from it I think we were like I don't know 20 meters away from oh it. wow we like, okay yeah pretty close and we stopped and we're like wow that's incredible and we stopped and then, and then we we hear a car that is coming uh, uh behind us so we we actually tell them to stop like wait wait there's an elephant on the roads pretty pretty big deal you know and we're we're, we're you know watching the elephant which is it, it seems you know so peaceful so quiet not in a rush at all mm-hmm. and we're not in a rush at all we want to give it you know all the time in the world to 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 cross that cross that road but then we yeah we hear that the the car behind us is not is it is in a you know a bit of a rush and that, yeah, they saw the elephant for, you know, a couple of seconds and that's more than enough for them. And they're, you know, about to, about to start the car again and drive. And like, so as soon as I saw that this is going to happen, I'm like, yeah, we need to, we need to ride. We need to be in front of that car and, and get closer to the, to, to the elephant. Yeah. And just kind of go slow. Huh? <laughs> Block yeah, the car. yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, it was it was the only chance to get closer to the to the elephant because if we had stayed, stayed there, then the car would have, would have just you know passed us and uh, and and scared away the elephant. Yeah. And so we we just uh, we just rode anyway. We are so close to that huge elephant. It was very very impressive, and we're super happy that we got to see you know uh, a, a wild elephant because you can see elephants in Thailand. Sure. But, most of the times that they're in captivity and mm-hmm. they're doing tricks and stuff like that. Um, and yeah. And after that, it was a quieter part of, of the national park because people, uh, basically they all come in from that one entrance and then they stop the visitor center and that's the bulk of the traffic. But yeah. And after that, there was like very few cars and, and every every time we were alone on that uh, on that road for more than a minute or so, we were like just watching all the bushes around us, you know, waiting to see if there was an elephant that would come out. But you know, it did. It, it, it did not happen. <laughs> but we were all we were super stoked that we got to see the one. Oh, that's great! I've I've never seen one in the wild. I lived in Malaysia, and you know, you always yeah. heard stories. But even on the highways. I mean, it's not a real highway, but the the road that goes over the mountains from the the east to the west, people talk so many times about, oh, yeah, I was on my way over, and there was elephants in the road, and we had to stop and wait. And I'm like, man, I never got that lucky, ever. Yeah. yeah. Um, So, yeah, so your trip came to an end uh, with a nice portion of uh, riding along the edge of the ocean or sea. 
And um, yeah, we went to uh, we went to an island. I see that. Yeah, that is called uh, Kokut. Okay, uh, and it's an island that I discovered on my first trip to Southeast Asia twelve years ago. Uh, quite upscale. The resorts there are not cheap, mm-hmm. but wow, just the most beautiful white sand beaches that you can imagine and the water is like turquoise and 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 you can you can see your feet all the time and it's just like oh, wow. it's just picture perfect it's just, just snorkeling just diving a, all that fun stuff it's just a postcard it's yeah. an actual this island is an actual postcard and yeah we needed the you know the few few days on the beach and after two or three days fanny was like yeah i think we can we can go back on the road now and i'm like ah come on just one more day (laughs) just one more day (laughs) i needed that extra day and after you know i think it was like four days on the beach i was like okay i think i've had enough yeah you're like we're going back to parisian france right you know that like in a couple weeks it's back to france yeah yeah, yeah, (laughs) no exactly a winter um, (laughs) but yeah like i had this fantasy of you know, having a bungalow on the beach, ah, yeah. and then we checked the prices, and we were like, "Wow, that's very expensive." Still, so yeah, what we would do is like we would get the cheaper accommodations that were a bit more inland, yeah, and then we would ride ride to the beach with the bikes oh, and nice. visit like two or three beaches a day, and just yeah, just 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 relax for uh, after this um, this long trip because even if we were not doing big days. In the end, it was still like 6,000 K, stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and some of these days were quite challenging. And, and yeah, it was just nice to, just nice to rest. And, uh, and then we, yeah, we rode, we rode back to, um, near Pattaya in the Rhinong province where we hopped on a, on a train to Bangkok. Okay. And these last few days of riding in, in Thailand, Man, it was hot. Because you're right too. You're right on the water level, right? You're right along the you know ocean. That, you know that mm-hmm. kind of heat. You know the yeah. kind of heat that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Super hot. And yeah, there was this this one day, one of the last days, probably the uh, the day before we got on that on that bus to that that train to Bangkok. Sorry, and so um so. Basically, we, we ride together with Fanny, but um, on the flat, sometimes I feel the need to just like push hard on the pedals and and go full gas, and and then I'm a bit faster than she is, and and so what we do sometimes is that she's gonna she's gonna go she's gonna go ahead, she's gonna wake up earlier, she's gonna go ahead, oh, okay. and then I'm gonna and then I'm gonna catch up, stuff like that. So usually we ride together, but sometimes we we ride apart. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think since it was, it was mostly super flat and I wanted, I wanted to take advantage of the flatlands to like go fast. I, uh, I, uh, I rode by myself and yeah, you know, these, you know, 40, 40 degrees Celsius days yeah. in, in southern, in, in, uh, uh, southern Thailand and riding fast. And at the end of the day, being completely depleted. Needing, uh, needing rest, needing food, 
needing water. Uh, I mean, ample amounts of water. Yeah. And, uh, and we get to that, which is probably a very picturesque little, uh, uh Thai town, um, on the, on the shore of the Andaman Sea. And I was, I was done, man. I was cooked, completely cooked. And, and Fanny was like, all right, let's go. And, um, Find a nice, uh, a nice food stall on the market, and I was like, I don't, I don't know if I can. <laughs> I don't, I can't do this. I can't do this. I was like, I suggested that we we would just, you know, take the bikes, get to the Seven Eleven, get some food there, and and then just go home and sleep, go to the hotel and sleep. And she was like, Oh no, it's not one of our last night in Thailand. It, it looks like a really nice town let's just go and just grab some food in the, in the market and i was like it's probably too late for this but okay uh this is a this is a couple vacation yeah i know i need to make some compromise <laughs> and so we were we went on foot walking in the streets of that of that little town she was pretty the sure is a pretty town but i mean when you're cooked you're cooked man yeah there's nothing you can do. It's just like you can't. There's nothing you 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 actually enjoy except for, you know, putting some food in your in your body and some fuel and 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 just then lying lying in your bed and doing nothing. And yeah, sure enough, it was uh it was too late for the market and we ended up walking for I don't know 15 minutes and then I was like yeah uh I knew this would happen but let's get let's let's get to that 7-Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Yeah, I on a scale of one to ten, how amazing are Thai Seven Elevens? Like, uh, I would say nine and a half. Yeah. What are they missing? <laughs> Massage. <laughs> uh, yeah. What are they missing? Is that? I mean, they don't always have that that uh, that um, little corner when you can sit down with your food and mm. just enjoy your food in the Seven Eleven. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you have to just sit outside where it's way too hot. Yeah. But yeah, if they all had these. I mean, some of them have, you know, these counters where you can sit, uh, sit down. If mm-hmm. all of them had their, the, the counter, then it would be 10 out of 10 for sure. Yeah. That's but, funny because, um, like Thailand was the only place that had 7-Elevens like that other than Japan and maybe South Korea like that I had seen. And I don't know why Thailand had that, you know, Japanese slash Korean style 7-Eleven where the rest of Southeast Asia didn't, but now it's. It's even picked up in Malaysia. There was quite a few of them yeah. by the time I was leaving, and it was really changing. They were like, I remember walking into a Seven Eleven in, in in KL and being very disappointed. <laughs> yeah, because I was coming from Thailand. They were like, "This is not a Seven Eleven, guys." Yeah, you guys are doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah, Anyways, yeah. man, uh, I don't know anything else you want to share about that was an amazing journey. Thank you so much for for sharing your story. Um, you know, it's a, it's probably a nice change of pace from talking about bike racing all the time too. So hopefully. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, we finished, uh, we finished the trip in Bangkok. Uh, we were lucky enough that one of my followers actually wanted to meet me, um, ended up not being there, but since he was out of his apartment, he landed us his apartment. Oh, nice. So we were living like locals in Bangkok. We had an old apartment and, um, yeah, Bangkok, honestly, First time that I went to Southeast Asia, and then the, a lot of times after that, not a big fan of that city. Um, I think it got better, and I think that oh, yeah. I kind of, I think I kind of enjoy Bangkok right now. I think I used to, I used to be. I think it became a little bit, a little bit more like KL, 
little mm. bit more maybe less civilized and less chaotic. Oh, okay. And I think it's it's it it has become. Um, I would not say that I would live there for sure. I would not. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, it was it was a good way to end the trip to just yeah be be in Bangkok and and, and enjoy a few. Oh, that's cool. A few days of downtime and uh, in 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 Bangkok and enjoy the amazing food that you can find in Thailand. Yeah. I don't yeah. think I've been there in five or six years, so it'd be interesting to see the difference. Because I remember when I was there, it was like, if you took a tuk-tuk, you were still deadlocked for, it could take an hour to get across part of town, you know, just a small section. Yeah. And, yeah. But uh, No, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a huge city that it's yeah. very hard to even just conceive uh, uh, just the, the, the size, the, the mega the mega size of this this this, this, this mm-hmm. megalopolis is just but i think that you would need several years to kind of have of, of, of an idea of what bangkok really is and have a, a layout in your head of where you want to go where yeah. you want to be stuff like that but um yeah i think that if you're not traveling on a on a on a shoestring and if you're gonna have to stay in the in the bottomless pit of despair that is Kalistan Road, it can be, <laughs> it can be actually quite okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any, uh, any other big, uh, or what's your next bike trip? I mean, uh, racing aside, any big plans for a little, another tour? No, I don't have, I don't have any, any bike packing trips planned for this year. Um, I am actually, as we're recording this, uh, in the South of France, about 80 K from Toulouse, I'm looking to buy a house and, I've been mm. traveling, racing, uh, bike touring a lot in the last few years. Yeah. And right now I just want to, I just want to have my place. You know, I live in Paris. We have a place in Paris. Yeah. Fanny. I don't like living in Paris. Mm-hmm. I don't like training in Paris. Paris is a terrible city when you love riding bikes. And so I'm just looking to settle down here in the South of France. Nice. And beautiful place. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely beautiful here. It is stunning. I have a cousin that lives in Toulouse, or she did. I don't know if she moved, um, but yeah, or just outside Toulouse, kind of in the forest. It was beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like the, the, yeah, we're, I would say 80 K from Toulouse here, maybe, maybe 70 and north of, of Toulouse. And it just, it's just so beautiful here. Really, really, really beautiful. France is an amazing country. Yeah. I mean, it took me years to find out how amazing France is, but it really is amazing. And yeah, right now my focus is on finding a house. And once I have that house, I want to, you know, make sure that it becomes a home. And hopefully, uh, I mean, I'm not sure that I will find it next week. I'm, I'm still here for a week yep. uh, visiting places. But hopefully I will find it this year. And I think uh, that next winter... Um, I will be just busy making my house a home. Yeah, nice. And, and just uh, yeah, after so much traveling, I feel a bit, a little bit of fatigue of always yeah. being on the move. And I'm, I'm gonna be on the move a lot with the racing season that's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's gonna start. Yeah, uh, next week. Well, st- still gonna be traveling in France next week, but still, yeah, that's the beginning of the racing season. And then it's just yeah, gonna be traveling in, in traveling in Europe, and then. And then, yeah, moving, moving all the time. Um, not as much as last year, but still. And so, yeah, I'm not planning bikepacking trips at the moment. 
I'm just uh, I'm just focusing on on yeah building that family so just, place yeah oh, amazing chapter of my life that is you know settling down in a, in, a, in a new in a new part of, of France and uh, and hopefully a, a part of France that I will I will get to to live in for uh, several years yeah amazing and you're not too far from the mountains either down there in Toulouse you got some nice uh, I guess yeah the, yeah yeah I mean. From where we are, I think that I did it once where I rode uh, the entire day and that, and I ended up in the Pyrenees. Yeah, nice. Perfect. So you ride 200K and then you're there. You're in the Pyrenees and you can have a good time. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's really not that hard. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much for the time. And uh, if I missed anything that you wanted to touch on, I guess uh, now's the time. Otherwise... Uh, I hope to talk to you again at some point. Um, maybe even catch up with you in France. You never know. We'll be uh, we'll be in Turkey and France or Turkey, France, Belgium this summer. So that's the plan. All right, cool. Maybe some touring with the baby and everything as well. So that's the that's the hope. We got the chariot. It's coming with us. And uh, nice. Yeah, my wife's still not sold on the idea of doing a tour in Europe, but I'm working on her. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it'll succeed. Yeah. All right. I'm going to end this recording. Thank you so much for your time. You don't have to hang up. We can chat for a few minutes and then, uh, Thanks I know for you having have me on the show. Stopper. Thank you, Sofian. Thank you. And, right. uh, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.